0: Please let yourself come back in and sit in a way that's comfortable. For those who were here the last couple of weeks, I raised a series of questions about the nature of attachment and the spiritual path so that we don't take it in ourselves in a kind of rote or idealistic way. Is there healthy attachment and unhealthy attachment, or is all attachment bad? You know, And is there skillful desire as well as unskillful desire? Or is there a skillful use of anger, or is there a difference between anger and hatred? Um, and if so, how can we understand that? And this evening, following up on those conversations about attachment and, and really looking in ourselves to see what we know brings freedom or happiness. I wanted to circle back to a theme that I speak about every, oh, periodically, at least every year or two tonight, um, that's quite related to the question of attachment, and that is the, uh, the dharma of, or the spiritual basis of, parenting. Um, and my whole parenting game is changing because I remember when my daughter Caroline was seemed like, you know, just a little while ago was so tiny I would carry her and introduce her and say, this is an apple and this is a pear and kind of introduce her to trees and things and give the words and now she's asking about how old do you have to be to get your learner's permit to drive? You know? (laughs) And whose car can she use? Stuff like that. And even if you're not parents yet, <laughs> um, perhaps you can listen uh, with the spirit that we all have a responsibility to co-parent uh, the next generation. And that's what this... Human realm will be is our children or our friends' children and our, our cousins' and siblings' children and how to care for that. The only way to speak of parenting, for me because it's such a deep question, um, is to really wrestle with it out loud if I can. Um, And I see uh, with some concern, especially the way that American government and politics have gone, um, where I heard at least a couple of years ago talk about, well, maybe we should reinstate orphanages and money for uh, food stamps for kids or disabled children um, has been reduced Um, that there's some way in which there's a concern we need to take as a group of human beings for this next generation. When the Buddha started to speak in his own teachings, um, he began with the first basic or noble truth about suffering in life and how one would find freedom in the midst of that. Um, Parenting is filled with both joy and suffering. It's just the truth, if you haven't tried it, just so you know.
1: <laughs>
0: it's beautiful and it's troublesome. But more than that, in our current society, there's a, a bit of a crisis in parenting, it appears to me. Sometimes it's a terrible thing to go to the park or the supermarket You know, and there's walking through the aisles of the supermarket and some two-year-old toddler knocks something off the shelf, you know, and then gets smacked. Don't you dare do that. Don't you reach for that. And the kid doesn't even understand, you know. They're there and the the very best psychological minds of our society have been paid millions and millions of dollars to make those packages attractive to us, right? (laughs) and they're just responding to that and then they get whacked you know you're bad for responding to that if you do that again I'll whack you again or whatever or you go to the park and see the way parents parent their children and sometimes it's beautiful and sometimes you're there and it's um, pretty scary and it's not that parents don't love their children deeply nor that they or we should feel guilty about what we do. Because really it's more about unconsciousness and not knowing what we do. And often dad or mom is tired, got three kids, financial troubles, you know, um, a, a grind of a job or a long commute or difficulty in the marriage or something else going on, and then it spills over. There isn't that energy to give to the children. And I used to go into my daughter's school here. There's a very wonderful school system in San Geronimo Valley, and part of the system is to have parents come in and help. Um, And sometimes it would be pretty difficult, because the majority of the kids there by this age, seems like half or more, are in families that have been divorced, And in that process, they have really difficult years. You know, and you can tell when you walk in a classroom which kids are in the middle of family difficulties. You can just feel it. Or which ones are kind of latchkey kids or mostly left to TV and junk food as their kind of upbringing for a time. The largest number of poor people in the U.S., below the poverty line in America, are children often kids in single-parent families. But no one is allowed to say anything. Here, a poem for you. What I heard at the discount department store. David Budbill. Don't touch that. Stop your whining, too. Stop it. I mean it. You know I do. If you don't stop, I'll give you something to cry about right here. And don't think you won't. Don't you think I won't either? So she did. She smacked him across the face, and you could hear the snap of flesh halfway across the store. And then he wasn't whining anymore. Instead, he wept as little body heaved and shivered. He was seven or eight. She was maybe thirty. Above her left breast, the pin said "Nurses' Aid." Now they walk hand in hand down the aisle between the tables piled with tennis shoes and bags of plastic bags of socks. I told you I would. You knew I would. You can't get away with shit like that with me. You know you can't. You're not in school anymore. You're with your mother now. You can get away with murder there, but you can't get away with shit like that with me. Now stop crying now, I say, or I'll give you another little something like I did before. Stop that. You'd better stop. That's better. That's a whole lot better. You know you can't do that with me. You're with your mother now. Pretty painful, isn't it? And no one's allowed to say anything. I found in a certain way that it's a greater taboo to speak about parenting than your sex life or the amount of money you have in the bank. There's so many strong ideas and so much conditioning about how we raise our children. And there's also a tremendous amount of guilt and fear. Am I doing it right? And pain. And when you look, it's astonishing to see how much comes out of us on automatic pilot as it was done to us, like our parents. And we repeat it unless we become conscious of another way. And it's not that easy. In that way, parenting is a lot like meditation. We'll get to that at some point. I remember being at a conference I was teaching and this woman had a young child, little less than a year old that she was holding and the child was screaming and throwing a tantrum about something. And one of the older women in the room Turned. There was a whole lot of people there. And she said, you she, she, she had four or five kids. She said, do you remember those days when you just wanted to take them and throw them out the window? And everybody in the room just laughed this great sigh of relief because they remembered.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so there's this intensity that comes when we have this kind of close relationship and how do we make it conscious in our modern technological society just as there's an ecological crisis ozone layer deforestation extinction of species toxic waste caused by a lack of connection with nature just like there's crises in homelessness in hunger and racism In this rich society, in a world with enough to really feed everyone, where less than 10 percent of the annual arms budget of the countries of this world, what's spent on weapons, could feed every hungry person. Just as this kind of crisis, that loss of connection, there is in some way the same loss of connection with nature in parenting. Loss of community, of village, and of some of the values of the heart. And I know it most compellingly in the retreats I teach with Maladoma Somme, this African medicine man, Luis Rodriguez, a Latino poet who works with youth gangs and working with young men from the inner cities who want elders, mentors, initiation. And when you don't get it, you go do it in the road to prove that you're a man. Um... And one of the most terrible things is to have some of these guys who are leaving their gangs or trying to say, you know, I just don't see it. I don't see myself living more than age 20, 22, 24. You know, it's too tough. Too many of my friends have died. And it's not right for a young person to know that many dead people. It's really not a right thing. And then I remember a moment. There was this one young man young Latino guy who'd been in a gang, talking like that. And Luis stood up. He said, you know, I've heard your voice, I've heard your poems. This man was, young man was trying to write poems. And he said, I can see you at 50 years old, writing, creating, whatever. And this guy was shocked. He said, you can? You can see me alive? And it was such a moving thing to have somebody outside him see him live. grow and prosper. But it's hard when we try to raise kids without village and community. There aren't the grandmothers, the elders, they're all at the office or the factory or they live someplace else in the country, some other state. There aren't the uncles to take the kid when the parents are fed up with them and the uncle needs to take them, right? To initiate the teenagers, to teach the art of being a community member. And there isn't in the speed of our culture so much the practices and the stories and the kind of holding that used to keep us connected with our instincts. So for 25 years... America read in books how you should raise your kids. Bottle feed them every four hours. You know, it's nuts. Every wise culture knows that when a baby cries, there's a reason and you pick it up. Wah! just leave it there. Let him cry it out. You know, and it's, it's crazy. In the 1920s, there was a famous school that taught by a man who had hundreds of thousands of followers who taught that it was bad to touch your children seriously. Now good parenting wasn't so much a question if you look back in Buddhist teachings in the Buddhist time. A Buddha was raised um, as a prince and he was nurtured and cared for and his needs were respected and taken care of. And one of the most important experiences in his enlightenment, his awakening, was that he struggled after he left the palace and so forth, for six years doing all these wild austerities and ascetic practices, until somehow he became, he emaciated from fasting and he tried to get his body to submit to his will and to get rid of his desire, all his desire and all his anger and all his fear, and he almost died. This is the myth or the story. And there he was lying there almost dead, having tried to subdue himself unsuccessfully. And all of a sudden, a vision came to him, a memory of when he was seven or eight years old in the spring, sitting under a rose apple tree in his father's garden. And all unbidden at that moment, that spring day under the rose apple tree, there came this sense of wholeness and well-being and stillness and connectedness. And he thought, oh my, I've been going the wrong way to get enlightened. And it was actually that moment that turned him back to what he discovered or called the middle path. The middle way to honor rather than to try to destroy his own body and being. Now the Buddha had this beautiful memory in his father's garden to draw on, but often there are children that don't in this generation. So John Gatto, the New York City Teacher of the Year, who I quote sometimes, um, when he received his award some years ago, stood up in front of the mayor and the school board and thousands of parents, and castigated them for the sole murder of one million black and Latino children. And he spoke about it in very compelling terms. He said, think of the things that are killing us as a nation, drugs, brainless competition, recreational sex, racism, the pornography of violence, gambling, alcohol, and the worst pornography of all, lives devoted to buying things, accumulation as a meaning of life. All are simply addictions of dependent personalities and that is what I see our current brand of schooling producing in our young people. We have increasing number of kids raised by TV and daycare daycare, lowest paid job, workers come and go, as it turns out, not very stable. Um, We see average children seeing thousands of murders on television and hundreds of thousands of advertisements by the time you grow up. You're learning the images of violence and materialism, just the stuff we're trying to undo in spiritual practice is being fed to our children, isn't it? We're the society with the highest infant mortality rate of any industrialized country. Out of all the 28 industrialized countries, we don't give prenatal care universally. Through advertising, a few years ago, the Ninja Mutant Turtle books outsold all other children's books put together in two years. So that's one side. Or we have the hurried child syndrome, the other side, where parents think that they're going to direct their children to success. You know, educational tests and all those things for younger and younger kids. And there's a book that was written by this psychiatrist called The Hurried Child because he and fellow child psychiatrists were seeing more and more children younger for stress, age eight, nine, and ten. From their prep schools and the extra things that they had to do, and their parents pushing them, and then you look in these magazines, parenting magazines, and you know you see these things for reading to your children in the womb, teaching them the letters and stuff like that. <laughs> and it's painful to hear about, isn't it? But probably the worst and the most difficult um, is that in certain places in our cities. Half of our teens are at grave risk. There are children. And they miss the years of respect or safety or holding. And we have children who aren't bonded to an adult, who have a hole inside. And they don't have someone with good sense, with that capacity for love and intimacy to mirror it, to give it to them. And the wanting in a person like that is very deep. Better to be wanted by the police than not to be wanted at all, it says. (laughs) And here we have this nation of commuters, one person in the car, lots of big houses, everybody has their own bedroom, and people are lonely. And then you wonder what happens when they grow up. Kids who are raised in you know, isolated ways or daycare, TV or whatever. Then we come to meditation retreats if we didn't get what the Buddha had. Then what happens is a lot of our spiritual practice is simply dealing with grief, unworthiness, abuse, self-hatred, addiction, a hole in the soul. So that when the Dalai Lama, in dialogue with Western psychologists and things in a number of the meetings we've had, talked about what it means to teach people in the West. He was just amazed to hear about how much unworthiness and self-judgment and self-hatred there was. And he went around the room one time and he said, do you experience that? And well, yes. And how about you? You know, it was Stephen Levine and Danny Goleman and wow. myself and various. Do you, how about you? Do you experience that? And everybody said yes. He couldn't believe it. He also couldn't believe a culture where people talk about hating their parents more often than honoring or loving them. He just couldn't understand it. When we do a deep spiritual practice, some of the grief and pain we touch is the sorrow of the world. And some of it is our loss of connection with one another. Our longing to be connected is so deep. And while we may, face it in our meditation, learn somehow to love ourselves, the next generation it may be even a greater problem. Parenting is a labor of love, a path of the bodhisattva. There's actually no other way you could bear doing it at certain times, it's too difficult. It's surrender and service and patience and understanding and sacrifice and creativity, all those things. And it's also a way to reconnect with a mystery, to reconnect with some beautiful place in ourself that's still there with that child and the spirit. You know how I like to read these children's letters to God from the elementary school or from the Sunday school. Dear God, did you mean to make giraffe like, look like that or was it an accident? You know? <laughs> Or dear God, I went to this wedding and they kissed right in church. Is that okay with you, Neil? You know. Or dear God, I wrote you before. Do you remember? Well, I did what I promised, but you did not send me the pony yet. What about it, Lewis. Or dear God, I'll bet it's very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in our family, and I can never do it. You know. Or, dear God, are boys better than girls? I know you are one, but try to be fair. Love, Sylvia.
1: <laughs>
0: I remember a few years ago when my daughter was just on that phase of not sure whether to still believe in Santa Claus or not. You know, And she was leaving him notes and then she'd come in and say, well, he answered my note that he must be real, you know. He ate the cookies, or there's so many presents, my parents would never get me that much stuff, right. <laughs> but then a year or two later, she took out the tape measure and she was measuring the chimney and saying, how does he get down there, you know. And you could just see her shifting from that place of mystery to measuring things, right. <laughs> from the reindeer to how many inches wide is that. But children really take us back to that place, going out and looking at the stars, you know, the mystery of being alive, which nobody really understands. It's so strange and wonderful. What did you learn in school today, a father asked his teenage son. Oh, we had lectures on sex, he said. Mm -hmm. Lectures on sex, well, what did they tell you? Well, first, there was a priest who told us why we shouldn't. Then a doctor told us how we shouldn't. Finally, the principal gave us a talk on where we shouldn't. <laughs> Try having teenagers around, grappling with, you remember, hormones, embarrassment, love, connectedness, who am I, who is other people, where do I fit? We still have those questions. It's part of this human mystery. We can easily see how connecting with children is a spiritual practice. Now, suppose, in the spirit of the Buddha's great teaching of mindfulness, the Mahasatipatthana Sutra, where the Buddha says to awaken, we need to pay attention to breathing in and breathing out, to standing and bending our arms, to moving forward and back, to eating and tasting, to urinating and defecating, to sitting and sleeping. We need to be mindful of when the mind is contracted, fearful or angry, and when the mind or heart is free from contraction or fear when it's loving, equanimous and wise. So these are the kind of instructions. We need to be aware of what it takes to develop loving-kindness, sympathy, empathy. Now, if the Buddha were to give the same discourse or the same teaching to parents, it might sound like this. And he did give to parents. Pay attention in the same spirit to your own and your children's body. As you and they sit, stand, move, eat, wet their diapers, poop in their diapers. Just as you sit up all night in meditation, you know, at times, which people do, so you sit up all night with a sick child. You know, and in the middle of getting up to sit late for meditation, you might say, well, I'm tired, I'm going to go, this is enough. Enlightenment, forget it, I'm going to go to sleep. But when your child is sick, you really do it. It's a better guru in a way just as you know how to begin to bring tenderness and loving kindness to your own fear and difficulty in meditation so you can hold a hurt child with loving kindness with compassion most importantly parenting is a practice for our awakening it's not for them they provide the perfect teachings For patience, surrender, letting go over and over because they change quicker than you want them to. And you're always a bit behind the curve. They're all ready to do this and you're still thinking there's some other way. (laughs) And it's a way to tend the garden of the next generation to leave this earth a little bit better and more beautiful place. I liked it when I heard that Derek Bach, who was the president of Harvard University, speaking on the tercentenary about the founding of Harvard in the 1600s, he said that Harvard has actually gotten better each century because the freshman class bring with them a little knowledge and the departing seniors take hardly any with them, so gradually it is accumulated. Now what would be the principles of the practice of parenting, of conscious parenting? And you hear them and you realize that we're also parenting ourselves. If you don't live with children or have them around, they're really the principles for this one here as well. And to honor this child of the spirit that is there in each of us. The first principle is that of listening of a mindful attention, an attention to the Tao, to the way things are, to the intuitive, to the instincts within us that are trustworthy, to that kind of deep knowing of the heart that we can trust. One of the favorite stories that I have told over all these years of telling stories is that Um, account of this tribe in East Africa who don't count the birthday of a child from the day it's born out of its mother's body or even from the day it was conceived which is the birthday in some cultures but instead they say that the birthday is the day that that child was first a thought in its mother's mind And then when she thinks really seriously of having a child with this man, before she does anything, she'll go out and sit under a great tree in a field or forest and wait as long as it takes until she can hear the song of the child that would be born to her and this man. And when she hears the song of this child that would be born to them, she sings it to herself to learn it and then goes back and teaches it to her lover, so that when they make love, they sing the song together to invite that child to come in. <laughs> and then as she's pregnant, she sings it to the baby, and she also teaches it to the midwife. so when the baby's born, instead of coming in, out and you know being held upside down and whacked on the butt or whatever, instead the first thing that happens, the baby comes out, and whoever there sings its song to it. And she teaches it to the village so when the kid starts running around and falls and skins its knee, somebody picks it up and sings his or her song to them. And as they grow up, it's sung. And when they get married, the song of the two who come together in marriage, their two songs are sung together all the way to the end of life, where if you're an old man or an old woman, the villagers will gather around you for the very last time as you die. And sing once more your song to you. And when I heard that story, I felt this deep longing to live in a place where we knew one another by our songs. And that's the spirit of this mindfulness or listening. If a small kid is fussy, what's going on? You begin to listen. Are they hungry? Are they scared? Are they tired? And adults are the same, you know, when your partner gets fussy, you understand. They're hungry or tired or stressed. It's the same thing, you begin to listen. Or this story of a young child some years ago during the Vietnam War, five years old, watching all those images that were pouring into our living rooms on the TV screens and started to have nightmares and get frightened and saying, Daddy, why is this war, why are they doing that? And the father kept trying to answer, well, um, it's because this country is split in half and some people want this and some people want that and then we sent troops and tried to give all the answers and, you know, explain it all the ways that he could and the child kept having nightmares and being frightened. And finally one day he listened more deeply. Daddy, why are they doing that? And he realized what the question was. And he said, you know, it's okay. It's far away from here, and it's not coming to where we live. And we're doing what we can to stop this war, but you don't have to worry that it's going to come to our, our village and to our community. And that's what the child needed to hear. In the same way, you listen with older children, their shyness, their embarrassment, their excitement about a new capacity, the day that's a fearful day for them, a bad hair day, you know, how it is when they go to school, and you begin to notice what they need and how we react to them, how we contribute to its difficulty, or how we can listen with understanding. There is a Tao, as in the Tao Te Ching, not as in the Tao Jones, although maybe there is that too. There is a Tao of how long to nurse children or how late to allow them out on dates. There isn't some fixed rule. And this attention begins to teach us and them to feel the rhythms just as much as we notice the in-breath and the out-breath in our own body. And when we see, we can understand, when we understand what our kids want and see that what they want is to grow, and blossom, we begin to develop a trust in their innate being, in their resiliency. It's kind of remarkable. We have a culture that is kind of afraid of dependency. Um, Peggy O'Mara, who's the editor of Mothering Magazine, which is one of my favorite radical journals and one of the best, put it this way. she, She really talks about the roots of what's going on in our civilization society. She kind of puts it under the rubric of parenting. She says, we have a cultural bias against dependency, against any emotion or behavior that indicates weakness. This is nowhere more tragically evident than the way we push our children beyond their limits and timetables. We establish outside standards more important than inner experiences as when we wean our children rather than trusting that they will wean themselves. When we insist our children sit at the table and finish everything at their meals, rather than trusting that they will eat well if healthful food is provided regularly. Or when we toilet train them at an early age, rather than trusting that they will learn to use the toilet when they're ready to do so, that they would want to. It is the nature of the child to be dependent, and it is the nature of dependence to be outgrown. Dependency, insecurity, and weakness are natural states for a child. They're the natural states for all of us at times, but for children, especially young ones, they are predominant conditions and they are outgrown. Just as we grow from crawling to walking, from babbling to speech, from puberty to sexuality, as humans we move from weakness to strength, from uncertainty to mastery. When we refuse to acknowledge the stage prior to mastery and teach our children to distrust their weakness, we start them on a journey of conflict, a lifetime conflict with themselves, using external standards to set up what their inner experience should be. Begrudging dependence because it is not independence is like begrudging winter because it is not yet spring. Dependency blossoms into independence in its own sweet time. And we know that of our children, we know that of our meditation or of the ways that we help and support one another. We're not independent, it's a myth. We're interdependent, that we depend on one another. So out of this listening, this connection where we try to hear what's right for this day or what's long for or what's fearful or what's beautiful that's emerging we become what the English analyst Winnicott called a good enough parent. Mm -hmm. It's not that you're supposed to be the perfect parent, God spare you, (laughs) or your children, but that place that trusts them and yourself and life. A second principle beside this, of listening attention, is respect. When we went for our first sabbatical to Bali, my daughter was six years old, Caroline, and she studied Balinese dance for the few months that we were there. And in Bali, children are respected as artists. They're considered small men and women in that way. And so at the end of our time there, her teacher, Wayan, at the at the school, Nataraja School of Dance, said we should do a performance. And so we went there in the afternoon, and he started to dress her for this performance. And I was there wanting to take pictures, but it started to get dark, and he took a long time dressing her. They wrapped her in 15 yards of silk, and they put this beautiful sarong on in a golden... Uh, waistband, and then they started to make her up as much makeup a six-year-old girl could die for, all this wonderful makeup, and did her hair up, you know, and I'm getting impatient, it's getting dark, you know, get on with it and so forth. But then I started to see my impatience and look, you know, and it was when the teacher took her own golden necklace off and put it on my daughter that I realized what they were doing. You see, they believe that when An artist performs in Bali, whether they're a small artist or a large artist, they don't do it for other people. They dance for the gods. And so to dance for the gods, you must do it really beautifully. And so they dressed her with the same respect and intention that they would have given the princess of Ubud in the palace to dance that night. And of course she danced beautifully. So the second principle of conscious parenting in our spiritual practice is this respect. To teach respect for one another, to value our bodies, our feelings, the life that we have, our imagination. And children may be limited in what they can do, but their spirit isn't limited. This quality of respect. You know how... And part of that respect may be that we set limits and we say no and we make boundaries. That's also a way of being respectful. How respectful are we toward our own bodies, toward our own feelings? Is it okay to touch, to cry, to be sad, to be angry? The respect we learn for ourselves is the respect we'll teach to our children. Remember the story of the family that took this their son and some other adults out to a restaurant and they were going you know around the waitress is going around and she says to the you know eight-year-old boy or something what would you like and he said I'd like a uh, hot dog and a root beer please and his mother says nope he's going to have meatloaf cooked carrots and mashed potatoes mm. the waitress took the rest of the rest of the uh, orders and then turned to the little boy and said do you want mustard or ketchup on your hot dog? <laughs> he said mustard please and she walked away and everyone was a little bit stunned and looked around and then the little boy said you know what she thinks I'm real every being your co-workers your children your lovers your plants thrive on respect they all love to be respected and sometimes um If we didn't get it, um, we may need therapy, some deep bonding connection with another person, just to learn how to give that respect to ourselves. So listening, respect, two more principles. Integrity. Children learn primarily by example by who we are and what we do and not by what we say. They notice. I mean, one of their main jobs is to observe what big people are doing, right? And they observe really well. And they notice if our words, you know, if we walk our talk or not. They watch. So the question is, what do we communicate? How do we drive? How do we treat other people? What do we do with our own bodies or feelings? There's a story of an old sailor smoked a pipe, you know. He used to wheeze and cough and, because of the smoke and whatever. And he had a parrot, as old sailors often do. And the parrot could talk. But after a while, the parrot got sick and it was wheezing and coughing away. The sailor thought he'd have to stop smoking because the smoke was bothering the parrot. So he took the parrot into the vet. The vet examined the parrot whatever you do for a bird, came back and said, well, is he all right? Is he getting emphysema or something from secondhand smoke? You know how it is these days, right? And the vet said, no, the parrot's fine. Um, He's just imitating your cough. (laughs) We teach by our being, whether at ease or impatient, whether agitated or forgiving in difficulty. I remember somebody asking Kalu Rinpoche, this kind of wizened and wonderful old Tibetan Lama, what age should I start my children meditating? And he said, don't do it. You know, if they want to start, they'll start themselves. You don't need to teach your children meditation, you need to do your own meditation. It's like my you know, daughter sometimes saying, dad, I think you need to go meditate, <laughs> right? Kids learn by example. If children live with criticism, they learn to condemn. If children live with hostility, they learn to fight. If children live with ridicule, they learn to be shy. If children live with shame, they learn to feel guilty. If children live with tolerance, they learn to be patient. If children live with encouragement, they learn confidence if children live with praise, they learn to appreciate. And if they live with fairness, they learn justice. If children live with acceptance and friendship, they learn to find love wherever they go in the world. You know, both the Dalai Lama and Krishnamurti, I remember somebody asking the Dalai Lama, you know, if you could come and live in the West and do anything you wanted. in in the western world what would you do he said oh i would start schools for children same thing that krishnamurti did integrity for this kind of integrity we need to slow down to give time to our children to participate in their schools to read to our kids to be good neighbors to the kids around us to our nephews and nieces and the children of those uh, 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 that we have contact with. And often we think we're too busy, we need money, we need another car, there's all this social work, social pressure to work, produce to get more. Don't do it, not not at the cost of your children. You know. And if you don't have children, befriend a child, find a refugee family that has kids or a neighbor Take time to play with them because they can help you retouch that child of the spirit inside. Integrity, respect, mindful attention. And the last principle is loving kindness, metta. You know when we sit in meditation how hard it is. We kind of bring ourselves back over and over again to our body or our breath or something like that. And then we see ourselves judge ourselves. When we sit in meditation we can see how much of our meditation can be taken up by blaming ourselves or scolding or feeling ashamed or that we're not doing it right or judging ourselves, you know. And then we've been taught to control our kids by telling them what's wrong, by blaming them, by judging them. What's gonna happen when they come to meditate when they're older? Or our teachers used to do it. I remember Joseph Goldstein, who I've taught with for so many years, who who really wanted to sing, said that his second grade music teacher said, you have no voice, just mouth the words, Joseph. And he just didn't sing for 25 years like that you know you participate very well by listening right or those art teachers who say you can't draw that doesn't look like a horse or a house you know and then you're deprived of the joy of drawing whatever you would draw for your whole life for you for decades children help us learn again this love and this caring we can't do great says Mother Teresa in this world we can only do small things with great love and what matters then is this spirit of loving kindness and finding that love can outlast anything parenting is a place to astonish yourself with love, with sacrifice and giving when your children are in difficulty it's amazing what will come out of you And everybody knows those stories of mothers who pick up cars off their children, you know. It's as if this this depth of love connects us with something so much greater than our small sense of self. We all long for a time like under that tree in Africa, where there's listening and connectedness, for a kind of community where we touch one another's heart where the child in each of us is honored. And in some way, it is through this next generation, through our children and our neighbor's children, that this can be restored to us as well. For in parenting, and in supporting other parents, and in supporting our other schools, somehow that gets awakened in us. Teach your children that the earth is our mother, said Chief Seattle, Whatever befalls the earth, befalls the children of the earth. The Buddha used to teach that you can't repay your parents enough for the life they've given you, even if you were to carry them around on your back. That was his image. I remember one day, oh, a few years ago, it was May, Mother's Day, and I was walking through San Anselmo, and this woman came up the sidewalk with a double stroller and these little twin boys in it. You know how you stop when you see multiple, multiple <laughs> births often and look at them because it's kind of amazing. So I went and she looked pretty harried and, you know, and I coochie cooed or whatever, I said hi to them. And then I said, you know, I said, I'm a twin. I had a twin brother. And then I had another brother who was born less than a year later. There were three of us. And she looked back at me and she said, you know, it's Mother's Day, you should get your mother a really good present. (laughs) 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 The way we repay our parents, said the Buddha, and all generations is bringing the Dharma to them. And what this means is our attention, our respect, our loving kindness, our integrity to them and to life. And don't think that we need to be richer and have more time off to do it, you know. We can see this as a world, a dog-eat-dog world, where, you know, everyone is in danger of being eaten. Or, said my teacher Gosananda, we can see this as a world where we all feed one another. And it's kind of amazing when you go to third world countries, which many of you have traveled in, in Asia or Latin America or Africa, how in the still intact village cultures and kind of traditional culture, how happy the children are often, and how many laps there are for them to sit in, and how you can go and be with the Tibetan people who have no money and are refugees and in a place they can't even go home and it's really difficult and their kids smile at you and they're they're the most happy children on earth because they're held and loved so deeply and if we let ourselves feel back to when we were three or seven or thirteen when we were hungry or frightened or confused or cold or something And all you really wanted was somebody else to see that and say it would be okay. And in this attention to the next generation of human beings, we learn ourselves the great gift of generosity. We bring the gift back to the earth of respect and freedom of heart that is our true nature. Because in this society, we have the capacity to feed all the children who are hungry. We do. And we have the capacity to clothe all the children who are cold. And in some way, every child that's born is a Buddha waiting for our respect, to care for him or her. It's so natural. Ralph Waldo Emerson said to laugh often and much to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children to earn the appreciation of honest criticism and endure the betrayal of uh, false friends to appreciate beauty and find the best in others to leave the world a bit better whether by a healthy child a garden patched, a redeemed social condition. To know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived, this is to have succeeded. So let's sit for a moment. Try to remember back in your own way to that amazing experience of being a child in this human world. Remember what you hoped for. And remember the beauty that was there, born in you, that's still in you. I don't think we'll do discussion tonight, but um, a couple of announcements and then a chant, and we'll go. Courtney came up to me, one of the beautiful young children here, and gave me this note in her own handwriting that says, Dear Jack, my friend Aaron needs a ride to Berkeley, spelled B E R K I L Y, Berkeley, tonight. If he doesn't get a ride, he will be sad, cold, and hungry, and have a lot of bug bites. Please find him a ride and have them come to the children's stage where he's helping with the family night. Can anyone give a ride to the East Bay? Great, so will you look for uh, Aaron out there. Thank you. And then another child came up and said, Cassandra needs a ride to San Anselmo tonight. Can anyone give a ride to San Anselmo? Thank you. Why don't you meet Cassandra up here by this white orchid? So I'll be here again next week. um, And then the week after, I'll be away at family camp with my mom and brothers and their wives and their kids and stuff, and um, Joseph Goldstein will be here leading a retreat at the retreat center, so he's going to do the Monday night talk in two weeks, and then i will be back for most of August. i um, like to invite those of you who have never done a retreat. If you've just come for a little while, you might try a day-long retreat here just to see what it's like of loving-kindness or mindfulness. Um, And if you've come for, you know, a bit of time and feel connected, um, try a silent retreat. They're quite extraordinary. Really one of the most wonderful experiences you can have. The first few days can be a little difficult, I have to say, because you run into all the stuff that you carry that needs to be just let go of and shed and open. They become really quite magical. So now it's here for you. So. So a little chant, and then we'll go. The chant is the word that means to bow to or pay respects. Again, in India, when you meet someone, the greeting is namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. And the root of that word in Sanskrit is namo, which means I bow to, bow to the child of the spirit in each of you. And I bow to the wise elder in each of you. So we'll chant Namo nine times and you can imagine what you'd like to bow to and then we'll go out into the summer evening. Namo.
1: Namo.
0: child that lives within you and all the child's children you touch in your life and all the children of the earth be blessed by our understanding and our wise and kind actions thank you have a good week